you are the one we praise and adore that our hearts always long for. Thanks, Eli, for that reminder. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you in the Word today. If you have a little one up through grade four and you'd like them to go to an age-appropriate service or graded service, they can be dismissed now or you can keep them with you. That's perfectly fine, too. It's good to be back together with you in the Word as we have worked our way through the morning. We have desired to come before the Lord in singing, in worship, we desire to come before him in the public reading of scripture as Paul instructed Timothy to instruct the church and to come before him in the worship of giving and now in the time of the word. And so I'd like you, if you would, to turn in your copy of God's word to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, of course, you do know, according to the, because of the, the cartoon behind me, you did get till Monday, all right? So if you haven't done it, you're, you're, you're a procrastinator uh, to the 10th power, you, you still have Monday to make this happen, all right? I hope you were in the Word this week. If you were not and you'd like to be, you'd like to develop a daily Bible reading habit, you can find some resources right there on the welcome table that can help you take you through the Bible in a year, cover to cover. That's my suggestion for you to do that and make that a habit of your life. Every day in the Word, it has a morning and evening reading, or you can do like I do and just do both of them at the same time. It has an Old Testament and a New Testament reading. And at the end of the uh, year from now, you'll have gone through cover to cover, and, and the richness of that reading will be yours. The understanding of God's nature, how he deals with people, the holy standard that he wants you to hold in front of your life all the time, the praise and worship he, you, that he deserves, which you'll be aware of as you do that, will be yours. So let me encourage you to do that. Many at Berean, including myself, use that as a daily Bible reading calendar, so let me encourage you to do just that. We are in a continuing study, God's plan for a healthy church. We've been off that study just for a little while since Easter as we've had some great opportunities to hear from some special speakers and to hear from uh, some of our missionaries and short-term, long-term missionaries. So it's been a blessing to have that variety. And now we're going to get back in our study. In particular, we have been going verse by verse. If you're new with us this morning, this is our fourth stop in chapter 12, partway through our look at spiritual gifts, really just getting our feet wet. And this is the section of 1 Corinthians where Paul really turns his attention to conduct in the church. And so many of the things we've been talking about and we will talk about all the way up to about the end of chapter 14 will be what's going on in the church service. And so very relevant for the church today, both uh, as a prophylactic to keep us from falling into uh, where the Lord wouldn't have us be and as a corrective if we already are. And so as you just read through here, there can be a lot of application. Once again, more application than we can make in the 50 minutes or so that we uh, take this time to be in the Word. So if you have questions, as always, I encourage you to write the questions down. You can send them off to me. We'll address them publicly, or I can address them privately to you, or I uh, encourage you to continue to read the Word. You have the same tutor that I have, the same textbook that I have, and as you cross-reference and let the Bible explain the Bible, these things that we look at will become more clear. To preserve our time together, I just want to set the stage. It's been a little while since we've been in this passage, so I just want a, a few thoughts to kind of prime the pump, if you will, as we begin our study. The church in Corinth, of course, was a church born out of paganism. It's a little island of believers in the middle of this pagan society. Uh, their exposure, their knowledge, their experience before salvation was in false worship, as really it is with everyone before they come to faith, whether they worship themselves or the God of this age or money or whatever it is, or as the pagans in Corinth, perhaps uh, false deities and false gods and those things that uh, they would have imagined that run the world and, and are in control of their circumstances and the seasons and all those things. So their experience is that they would go to the temples, they would have celebrations during uh, particular times of year which would honor certain deities. They were used to those kinds of things, they understood those interactions. Now they've come to faith, but their experience and their exposure and false worship uh, which we have seen is really the worship of demons. When you're not worshiping the true God, uh, Scripture indicates that you're actually worshiping demons. They are impersonating these false gods who can do nothing. Temples are void of anything. Nobody home there, no matter who you're praying to. Uh, if it's not to the true God, there isn't anyone home. But demons are there, and they are allowing just enough to go on, as we've seen in the past, so that they can keep the people coming back and being deceived. And so they're worshiping demons. This is what they understood. And some people, as they watch this whole thing, some people seem to be in close touch with the pagan deity. And those people who were in close touch with the pagan deity seem to receive some special gifts. Now, this is their background. They watched this in the pagan temple. Uh, they had witnessed these individuals perhaps behaving in unpredictable ways, uh, throwing themselves around in a frenzied manner, uh, being the voice of the god or whatever it might be. And in the minds of these pagan worshipers, this fervor really was the indicator 
that the pagan deity was at work in them. Now, you fast forward to the day of Pentecost, and what you see now is some of the followers of Christ manifesting some unusual spiritual gifts. They did things like speak in a tongue they didn't understand. Uh, to many early believers, this kind of thing appeared to be the mark of a spiritual person. That's what their background was. Uh, now they see this happening in Christianity. The Holy Spirit has been given. He's empowered some to do some things. And so they have uh, this special gift. And by comparison, the practice of Christ-like uh, behavior, as we see later, really seemed to be dull by comparison. And so these types of exciting, apparently spiritual people really seemed to have gifts that other believers wanted. They had seen unusual behavior in pagan religions. This is what they expected in Christianity, and this is what they desired. And so Paul comes along, and he makes some important statements, because some of the believers at Corinth had come to Paul, and they are, they're wondering, and they're looking at this, and they're wondering what they should think about all the things that are going on. And really in this Corinthian church, there was some chaos going on, some manifestations of the old life salting the church, some manifestations of spiritual gifts, and some people looking for those gifts as the ones they wanted. And so a whole bunch of confusion. Paul's coming here, and he's making some statements that are very important, and really contrary to, if you will, an intuitive understanding of what should be going on. So contrary to the usual understanding of paganism in Christianity, the Holy Spirit doesn't just indwell and empower a few people. He indwells and empowers every believer. So that's the first thing Paul wants to make sure they, they understand. Listen, this isn't just for a few select people who get inhabited by the pagan deity. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Every believer has been given gifts. And so Paul wants to make sure that they understand that that is actual, that that's actually correct thinking to understand that there is spiritual gifts and empowerment for everyone. But he also is clear that the presence of the Spirit is to be seen normally in what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. So the idea, of course, Galatians 5, 22 through 23, love, joy, peace, things that Jim mentioned just a minute ago, and not ecstatic behavior. So the norm for Christianity is the fruit of the Spirit. And he also makes it clear that the exaltation of Christ is the common denominator, whatever the exercise of the spiritual gift, if they don't draw attention to Jesus, then it isn't from the Lord. And so Paul wants to make sure there's a few things that are clear. Everybody gets spiritual gifts. The norm is fruit of the Spirit manifested in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Those things are the norm. And there are some special spiritual gifts. But if they don't draw attention to Jesus, then they aren't from the Lord. Then he proceeds to point out that there are many gifts of the Spirit and all are necessary. He lists some of them, and we're going to see some of them here, and, and none of the places in Scripture give us an exhaustive list, but together, as we're going to do and as we have done over the last several weeks in this message series, we'll draw those together and get a fairly com uh, complete list of perhaps how the Holy Spirit manifests itself. But some of those, he's going to say, he's going to point to the point that, uh, that whatever the spiritual gift, they have to draw attention to Jesus, and then there are many of these gifts at work, and all are necessary, and he lists some of them and how they're to be used and what it's going to look like, because these are the questions that are coming to him from Corinth. And then he's going to move on to the most excellent way, and that's the way of love. So he's going to talk about all these spiritual gifts, and he's going to say, listen, but the true test of whether or not you're born again is the way you're going to express those gifts, and that's in love. And that certainly wasn't going on in the Corinthian church in any great measure, because we saw even in the, in, even in the celebration of the table, we saw selfishness and self-centeredness and just putting themselves before other people and faction and all these things. And that's been the, really the, the underlying thread through all of the book is this factious behavior, this putting yourself first, thinking of yourself more than you should. So he agrees with the Corinthians that the amazing gifts have their place, but he's not going to give them the most important place. And we're going to find out that that place belongs to love. So I'm just kind of giving you a long view of where we're headed. We're going to talk about these great things, and then we're going to look at the most important thing that's supposed to be manifesting. And then Paul will expose what's false, and he's going to get the church back on track. So this is... God's plan for a healthy church. He sees some of the issues that are here. He works through his Holy Spirit in the Apostle Paul. He addresses in a letter these things that he sees are going on. And this has kind of been our habit as we work through these first 12 chapters of 1 Corinthians. Now, look together, if you would, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. I almost exceeded the time that I would start to make fun of someone if they didn't say, now open your Bible and let's read, okay? Because if you're talking too much and you don't go to the Bible and say, let's read what God has to say, you need to sit down and let somebody else stand up and know that God wrote a book and he has something to say, all right? So I think I just made it under the wire, okay? So hopefully not too much, not too much up front. All right, look, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 through 11, all right? And we'll read that, and that will be really set the stage for us as we begin to look at what we're going to look at today. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren... 
I do not want you to be unaware. Verse 2, for you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Verse 3, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 5, there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 8, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Verse 10, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. Let's stop right there. And I've said before, I think teaching spiritual gifts is a lot like trying to get started with your vehicle in sand. You just seem to throw a lot of sand around at the beginning, and then you finally get underway. And that's kind of how, how it is, because I think it's important that we make, some, we make some comparisons and lay some groundwork so we understand uh, what is common for first century, what is common for where we are now, and why we should think those things. So this message is going to be a little bit of both of those things as we get our, our feet wet here. Now look at verse 1, if you would. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. Uh, to get into the discussion of spiritual gifts, the Corinthian church you know, believers' conduct in their meetings is the issue. And, and obviously Paul is answering some questions that have to do with being spiritual. And we just kind of laid that foundation early on as we started this morning. Some in the Corinthian church had, had brought some questions to Paul's attention. We looked at perhaps how he received that transmission. And so we won't go back through that again. But they wanted to know what it looked like to be spirit-controlled. A very common question, a very important question, considering their background. They're new in Christ. The church has been given all the spiritual gifts they need to minister to each other and to make the Holy Spirit known. But again, the culture is assaulting the church and their background in pagan worship with its ecstatic utterance and their voices of the gods and all the things that are going on was making its way into the church services. And so they're trying to have, they're having a hard time distinguishing what they understand to be spiritual, what they understand to be spirit-controlled, and what's just paganism coming back into the church. So what does it look like to be truly controlled by the Holy Spirit is the question. And because we know from the previous passages that Paul had passed down to them all the traditions that they needed to know when he was their pastor, this is obviously a repeat. But Paul is going to go ahead and go through it. He's going to give the discerning ones some principles to help them figure out what's going on. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of this very important doctrine. And we don't want the church to be ignorant either, the modern church. And so it's just as relevant today as it was then. Now, first he makes clear, look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So right away is the instruction by contrast. When the Holy Spirit is work, Paul says he will not mimic the pagan worship practices of the past. You know how it was. It's not like that today. Just a very simple statement. I really like it. You know when you were pagans, you were led away to mute idols, however you were led. All kinds of stuff went on uh, that uh, shouldn't have gone on, and, and you were experiencing it. Secondly, verse 3, he tells them this. Look there, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the ultimate criterion that we saw just a moment ago of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. And as you look through even, even the speaking of tongues early on at Pentecost, what was going on? What was happening in the speaking of tongues? The gospel was what? Being transmitted, isn't it? And that's exactly what was happening. And so everyone could hear the gospel in their own language. The Holy Spirit gave some gifts, and we're going to see some of those in just a minute. So the ultimate criterion of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. The content, then, is the most important part. As Paul tells them, okay, if you're trying to figure out what's going on, if what's going on in your church is spiritual, then first of all, you're going to know it's not going to be crazy like it used to be in the pagan temples. And secondly, it's going to exalt Jesus as Lord. The content is very important. So in Corinth, the spiritual ones are asking a question. Hey, how can we know if this person is spiritual? And Paul says, you're going to know because it won't be like it was when you worship dumb idols, and you're going to know because of the centrality of the message of Jesus' lordship. And so then Paul will, and we'll just give kind of an outline, if a sketch of the passage, if you will, kind of how we're going to break it up. Paul goes through the test of the Spirit, which we just saw. And then as we get to uh, verses 4 through 11, Paul's going to go through the gifts of the Spirit. And then the unity of the Spirit as we get to verses 12 through 27. Then the variety of the Spirit, how, how, very, uh, how much variety is there inside the church and how, it, how it, it, it varies by individual. 
And so we're going to see that. We've looked at that in Romans already. They want to see the love of the Spirit. And really, that's uh, 1231 all the way through uh, 13, 1 through 13. And then the priorities of the Spirit, as you get to verse four, uh, chapter 14, 1 through 40, we're going to see Paul say, okay, this is how it should act, and this is what it should look like as you get into a church service. I've given you all the groundwork. I've given you how to figure out if it's spiritual. I've told you what the gifts are. Now I'm going to tell you how they're expressed is very important. It's in love. And then we're going to move on and we're going to say, okay, here's the priorities of the Spirit. This is how it's supposed to work. And this is what I'm going to require, Paul says. So now, verses 4 through 7, we get into this second facet of his instruction on spiritual gifts, where he's going to give some general principles concerning spiritual gifts before he gets into the gifts themselves. Look at verse 4, if you would. Now, he says... There are varieties of gifts for the same Spirit, verse 5. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There's this wide range of combinations of gifts that have been distributed, Paul says. And we saw that illustrated as we went through Romans 12. And so if you remember and you were with us, you saw that, or you can go back and you can look that up online and read that and, and listen to that. And if that's the case, and it is, then there is a wide range of combinations of ministries that are happening. Paul says if there's a wide range of gifts given, then there's going to be a wide range of ministries that are going to go on. So a wide range of combinations of gifts, unique in that combination, which leads to a wide variety of ministries which are as diverse and are as distinctive as the gift of God's grace and the measure of faith he gives to each person to accomplish the ministry of the Spirit in his church. And that's exactly what we see. So both of those things are true, okay? First thing is, a wide variety of gifts, we see that. And we see a wide variety of ministries. And once again, I pointed out, many men and women with similar, similar gifts have very varied ministries because the Lord brings people into the church to minister to a certain section or a certain place, and he's gifted them accordingly so they can make that happen. So they're going to vary from one another. And then the end of it, verse 6, look there, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So again, there's a wide range of outcomes from the gifts and ministries that are happening, and that's exactly what we see. You see a wide range of gifts, varied by individual. You see a wide range of ministry going on because of those varied gifts and because of the places where they can minister. And then you see a wide range of outcomes, what's happening as a result of that ministry. The same Spirit, same Lord, same God. On the other hand, though, variety, variety, variety. One God, one Christ, one Spirit, which means he has one will, then gifts, ministries, effects, all different. So, Paul's first general principle then in relating the gifts of the Spirit is that in the church, there's this contrast going on between the unity within the will of the Spirit and the will of God and, and the will of Christ and the diversity, which is the varieties of gifts and the varieties of ministries and the varieties of outcomes or the varieties of effects. And that's very normal. So Paul says this thing, as you look at the church, you understand it's gonna, they need to exalt Christ. You understand everything has to orientate around what is exalting to the Lord and not what you did in paganism. And then he says, listen, and as you move into this and it begins to be active in the church, there's going to be a lot of variety. Don't be worried about that. That you can't stand everybody up and say, okay, everybody has the gift of administration. Just stand right here. All your gifts should look exactly alike and all your ministries should look exactly alike and your outcomes should all be exactly like Paul says. That's not going to happen. There's going to be a wide variety of things going on. Okay? Now, Paul's next two general principles take in every believer, and for they all been, have been given grace, uh, the grace gifts of the Spirit. So he gives the church really a double in verse 7. Look at verse 7 if you would. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So part one, correctly functioning spiritual gifts make the Holy Spirit's presence in the church clear. So Paul says, listen, this, this is an important aspect of church ministry. Correctly functioning spiritual gifts Make the, the Holy Spirit visible in the church, actually going on. Something's happening. And many times you can sense that in a church. When you go in and you, you feel a very war, a, a warmth of friendship, a fellowship there, people are coming and, and loving on you and inviting you to things and making sure that you have what you need. There's this ministry of mercy, a ministry of, of need meeting going on, and you realize, wow, you know, the Spirit's active there. Or you look around, you see a lot of people involved in individual ministries and, some, and fruit is coming from that. You realize, okay, this is the Holy Spirit at work. And you can see that happening, and it makes the Holy Spirit, his presence there known, and then, of course, the Holy Spirit exalts Jesus. And then secondly, the second one of this verse 7 is, your gifts of the Spirit are not for you. And so Paul begins to hone in on perhaps some of the activities that are going on in Corinth. Gifts were not given so that the believer with the gift could be exalted, or glorified, or for rivalry, or for jealousy, but for the common good. It wasn't given to draw attention to you. 
the revealing of gifts in the life of a believer, whatever they are, is for the advantage of the church. Spiritual gifts, listen, beloved, very important. Spiritual gifts are given to be used in such a way as to edify the whole body of believers, not some individual possessor of the gift. Now, that, that cuts away a lot of dross in the first century church and a lot of dross in the modern church as well, okay? So, if it's edifying you, then just cut it away because that's not what it was given for. So the church will have what it needs. They get the gift so the church can be benefited. The church will have what it needs so that the church can meet the needs that come up. The focus should be off the individual because God is all and in all, and he's distributed the gift according to his will, and he's given the faith according with the grace gift so that it could be applied. He loves the church. He's equipped it by the Holy Spirit to be and do all it needs to be and to do. Now, look at verse 8. Paul moves from general principles regarding spiritual gifts to the actual gifts themselves that allow us to serve one another because that's what it's for, right? For the common good of the church. He's going to give some examples of gifts in the ongoing life of the church. And that's just, of course, a logical progression. He gives, you can figure out if they actually are spiritual. You can figure out what the purposes of the gifts are for. And then he's just going to move right on into the gifts. So a logical progression here. And it's going to have a clarifying effect for the church. They know some basic tests to help them understand whether someone is controlled by the Holy Spirit or not. They know the purposes of the gifts, which are demonstrating God's will to make his Holy Spirit visible and to benefit the church. And then he moves on to verse 8, and he says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So Paul continues with his instruction here that that this is the Holy Spirit at work. Remember what he said in verse 4. He said, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are some, these then, as we look at them, are going to be some of the wide range of combinations of gifts that have been distributed. So just keep that in mind. This is just a wide range of things the Holy Spirit gives to the church. Okay, so, now there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit. So some of those combinations are here. So, Let's look at verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. Now we saw that word of wisdom. That's the Greek noun logos, sophias, a speaking gift, as we saw from 1 Peter 4, which we're going to look at again in just a minute, remind you of that. The spiritual gift of the word of wisdom. Now, this appears to be the ability to articulate and apply knowledge and spiritual insight gained from the Scriptures to believers in order to know right from wrong or what to do in a particular situation. This word of wisdom is just simply this, that ability to articulate and apply the knowledge gleaned from the scripture, okay? God is the source of wisdom. He's the source of knowledge. Romans 8.33 tells us this. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God has both of these in the most untapped and the most fullest experience. And Paul describes the fullness of both of these as the depth of the riches and the knowledge so I guess the question is, what part of God's character is untapped and beyond calculation? Well, all of it, frankly. But Paul is just going to focus on these two. The wisdom, Sophia, the application of facts, directing all things to the best end. And knowledge, gnosis, which are the facts. It knows the end, knows the beginning, and the issues involved in between. So Paul can say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And we understand that, don't we? God has both of those in the fullest possible experience. He has all the facts. He knows the beginning. He knows the end and the issues involved. He directs all things to their best end. God has an infinite capacity, if you will, to know and an infinite capacity to apply knowledge. There's nothing that God doesn't know. Everything works according to his plan. Now, because that's the case, then catch this. He has the resources to empower his people, of course, in some small way, by comparison, to minister to one another and meet one another's needs. And as I say many times, beloved, it's really, it's really a sad state of affairs when believers in the church will go outside the church to secular counselors who are basing all their philosophies on pagans and atheists and their philosophies and come back and somehow think they're going to come into a counseling session with a non-believer and come away enriched somehow in their life. Remember, there is no psyche. There's spiritual, there's physical, okay? And the Lord has equipped the church to minister to itself. And so inside the church, there will be people who have the word of wisdom, an ability to see what the issues are, take the knowledge from scripture, and be able to direct to the right end, okay? So there's this resource inside the church that sometimes goes untapped. 
And it's been given to men and women, young and old, all throughout the history of God's people. It's still given today. The scripture would seem to indicate this is a permanent edifying gift as opposed to a temporary sign gift. And we're going to look at that very clearly today. So it's clear what we're talking about. But there are numerous examples of this gift from the scriptures. And we looked at many of those when we were going through this and showed their use and value. So we won't do that again. But keep in mind, beloved, wisdom is used more than 50 times in the New Testament. It can be human wisdom about worldly things. It can be something that is false wisdom. But in the case of 1 Corinthians 12, 8, we're talking about a word of wisdom, which is a special spirit-given ability to apply knowledge and spiritual insight gained from the scriptures to believers by being able to clearly articulate right from wrong and what to do in a particular situation. Now, let's look at the end of verse 8, if you will. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians if you will, 12, 8, Paul says, For to one is given the the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now, word of knowledge, uh, logos, gnosis, again, Paul is describing here, it's a speaking gift. It's a spiritual gift given to believers so that they may understand the facts of Scripture, the ability to know the truth of Scripture both broadly and deeply, if you will, a comprehensive understanding of the Scriptures, which would manifest itself then, because it's a speaking gift, in teaching and training and explaining and passing on those truths. The Spirit gives the ability to articulate that clearly. So to God belongs all knowledge. We saw that already. Paul in Romans, Daniel also says that as he was giving credit for being able to determine what what was going on in the king's palace. He says, listen, to God belongs all knowledge. So we understand that to be uh, a, a truth that everyone knows. And again, because that's the case, then he has the resources to empower his people in some small way, again, by comparison, to minister to one another and meet one another's needs. So the scripture would indicate that this is a permanent edifying gift. Again, it continues throughout the church age. And again, we looked at numerous passages that indicate the uses of the gift and its benefit. We won't do that again. But remember, knowledge is used almost 200 times in the New Testament. It could be human knowledge. It could be something, Scripture says, that looks like knowledge but isn't. It can be used in parallel with salvation, that all men will come to the knowledge of the truth, which is meaning all men come to salvation. But in this case, in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, we're talking about a word of knowledge, which is a spirit-given gift of an understanding of the facts of Scripture broadly and deeply, a comprehensive understanding so that it can be communicated to believers in training and equipping and explaining in doctrine and so that, as you look at Ephesians chapter 4, the church may be fully equipped for every good work. They'll understand what they need to know in order to do what they need to do. Now again, because we can't emphasize this enough for Romans 12, 6, Paul says this. He says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them, Paul says, accordingly. In other words, it's stated as a fact in the accusative. We have gifts, and we takes in all believers. We each have gifts. Each gift differs in its manifestation from one another. Each has been given by God as a measure of faith to animate that gift. And so there's this really customized way this gift is going to work in you because you've been given a measure of faith to animate that gift. God portions it all out, from his own resources, in his own sovereignty, according to his own will, because he owns all those things and he has them all in unfathomable depths, doesn't he? Varieties of ministries, varieties of outcomes, varieties of gifts, just as God has ordained it and desired it so his church can be complete. So I say that to say, if you have these gifts or any other one we're going to talk about in the next eight weeks, You are to be using them to edify and build up the church. First and foremost, your church. That's why you're here. Let's just make it real. For the common good. The part you have to play is very important. You have a common good you minister to when you bring your gift into play. And you all have gifts. And so as you see these gifts explained, and today we're going to go through some of them, it's kind of sketch and you'll get an idea perhaps of where you're falling in there as you look at yourself but the the, the bottom line is this you are here to bring your gift into play and it is for the common good of the church my gifts are not for me they're for you your gifts are not for you they're for others that were in and for me and that's how it goes and now that you know you have some you are to paul says in romans 12 6 plug them in so I can't emphasize this is not just in a vacuum. We're not studying spiritual gifts so that we can label them and kind of identify who we are, but that's so we can begin to plug them in, realizing we're here 
for the common good. Your gifts are for the common good of the church. And when you aren't exercising them, we are missing that portion of the ministry that you could have brought to bear. Okay, so very important that you make that real for yourself. Okay. Now, last time we took a look at 1 Peter 4, which seems really to divide the gifts up into two categories and really repeats four important principles that we've seen before. And I want to talk about them because it will segue into the next thing we want to talk about. 1 Peter 4.10 really aligns with Paul very clearly when he says this, as each one has received a special gift, employ it, there it is, in the accusative, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You need to plug it in. So first we see you've received a spiritual gift, same exact wording. Secondly, your gift is for someone else. Same thing we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, or Romans 12, and in 1 Corinthians. Okay? Thirdly, we're to do it to be a good steward. So it is you, you have to come in and you have to use this in order to be a steward of the thing God has given you. And that's the same kind of wording as we talk about money, same kind of wording as we talk about how you use your body. You are a steward of something loaned to you. And the spiritual gifts are exactly the same, measured the same way by the master. As, you give, as you're giving these things to use, you're to put them into play. So we're supposed to manage them well. It all belongs to God. We are to use it to its fullest extent for his glory. Peter seems to, to break the gifts then into two categories. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. So we have speaking gifts then. Uh, right now, we're not distinguishing between temporary sign gifts and permanent edifying gifts, but we will in just a minute, okay? Just speaking gifts, okay? When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we'll be able to see the difference. But anyway, in speaking gifts, we saw Romans 12, 6, prophecy, teaching, exhorting. We saw 1 Corinthians 12, 8. We, we can see word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, in various kinds of tongues, and interpretation of tongues. We can see in speaking gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, apostles and prophets and teachers and i gave this to you last time so i won't slow down for you to jot that down you can catch that catch up on that i'm just giving you kind of an example of, of the ways these things wash out and then whoever serves as to do so who as one who is serving by the strength that god supplies so serving gifts and once again not distinguishing between temporary sign gifts and permanent edifying gifts we just compare scripture with scripture so serving we see faith and gifts of healing and affecting of miracles and distinguishing of spirits and serving and giving and leading in mercy and helps and administration and pastors uh, and the gift of pastor and all those things fall into these uh, under this uh, heading of serving and then the rest of verse 11 we see where our, our fourth important principle comes from peter he says this so that in all things he says god may be glorified through jesus christ to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever amen so fourthly we see then in the gifts, God is glorified through the magnification of Jesus. Again, once again, as the gifts come into play, Jesus is magnified. The Holy Spirit is shown to be present, and Jesus begins to be magnified. That's the way it's supposed to look. To whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, very clear. As we think about the speaking gifts, and we think about the serving gifts, typically these gifts, and here's where we're going to break down into some doctrines and teachings so you can begin to classify these in your mind. And I'll give you a number of things to shore this up for you. And then, of course, there may be some questions and if you have questions that'd be great you can go ahead and email those to me and we'll we'll work through those but here's the thing as we think about the speaking gifts and we think about the serving gifts as peter breaks those apart typically these gifts can be further categorized as temporary gifts or sign gifts and permanent gifts now, i'm just going to give you a sketch here a brief survey there's much more that we won't touch on today for instance we won't touch on church history today and what actually occurred after the first century, we won't touch on 1 Corinthians 13 because we're going to get there. And the scriptures, as they give instruction about what's going to pass away and what's going to stay, we're just going to talk about these things and give you kind of a sketch about how we can begin to look at them. Uh, temporary or assigned gifts are gifts that were given to confirm the testimony of the apostles and the prophets and as assigned to the Jews. Just as a general definition. Temporary assigned gifts are gifts that were given to confirm the testimony of the apostles and prophets and as assigned to the Jews. These gifts are referred to as temporary as such. They were prevalent in the early church, but ceased to be evident as the church became established. They also are referred to as sign gifts. Uh, they were visible signs that had been prophesied that would reveal the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. They were visible verifications that attested to the salvation of the Gentiles and confirmed their acceptance into the church. And we're going to look at some illustrations of that in just a moment. So, they're temporary because they were prevalent in the early church and ceased to become prevalent and moved out of the forefront as the church grew more mature and moved out of the first century. They're sign gifts because they were prophesied. They would come. 
They were to reveal the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. They were visible verifications that showed that the Gentiles were actually becoming saved and would become a part of God's family. So temporary sign gifts would have included then healings and miracles and tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And we're going to look at those just briefly, okay? So temporary or sign gifts would include healings and miracles, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Now, I will say as we get into that, because there's a variety of backgrounds here, there are some that believe that the temporary or sign gifts are still active today. Gifts such as healing and tongues would appear to be prominent in the charismatic movement. So there are a number of questions that we can ask that can help us kind of verify and clarify this for us in our mind, okay? First question, can it be shown that the original purpose of the temporary sign gift no longer exists today? And I believe the answer to that is yes, it can be shown. Second question is, can it be shown that the way the temporary sign gifts are manifested today does not match the way the gifts were manifested at the time of the early church? And again, I think the answer is, I can show that the answer is yes. So two questions. Can it be shown the original purpose of the temporary gifts no longer exists today? And the answer, I think, is yes. And then the second question, can it be shown the way their temporary sign gifts are manifested today does not match the way the gifts were manifested at the time of the early church? And once again, I can say, I think we can say yes. Now, we're not even going to get into whether or not they're manifested as Paul has described them to be, because we have a whole other category there of what's going on today in the charismatic church, which would directly violate Paul's instructions here. We're not even going to touch that. We're just going to go through these simple questions and ask the questions and then have the answers. I think you can come to a fairly uh, firm footing as we get into uh, these gifts, okay? Now, let's look quickly at the first two temporary gifts, and we're going to give some illustrations and just kind of move through this very fluidly, so stay with us, okay? I'll give you the scriptures up on the screen. You can jot down their references. If that's helpful to you, go back and read them again, okay? So, healings and miracles, the original purpose and usage of healings and miracles. That's really what we're going to look at, okay? Now, um, to confirm the gospel message, Hebrews chapter 2 um, and verses 3 and 4. It confirms the gospel message. One of the purposes and usage of the healing and miracles was to confirm the gospel message. Uh, Hebrews 2.3 says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So there's this great salvation that's come to the church, and it's obviously uh, evident. After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Verse 4, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So it was to confirm the salvation had come, particularly to the Gentiles, but also God was doing this work, and it was clear that he was at work amongst the people. And the message was going out, and he was doing it, and he confirmed it, how? By signs and wonders, okay? So it confirms the gospel message. Uh, next one, confirm the apostles, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul, as he's saying, he says, listen, not only did it come from me, but other apostles who were among you, they confirmed what they were saying was true by signs and wonders and miracles. And we see Romans 15, 18, which we looked at already. Romans 15, 18 and 19, uh, Paul says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except cr what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and the power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit. So again, what's the usage, what's the, uh, what's the purpose? It's to confirm the gospel message, confirm the apostles, confirm Paul, confirm that the gospel message had come to the Gentiles, that this was truly God at work. Okay? Now we see again, uh, confirm the message and the messenger in Acts 4, 29 through 30. Uh, the disciples are praying, and they say this, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders to take place, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So the disciples are at work, they're receiving some persecution, they're not too worried about that, they want to make sure the gospel goes out, and then they're asking the Lord to continue to confirm that people are coming to faith, particularly that Gentiles are coming to faith, and that God is at work here, and how, is he, how are they to see that he's at work? Hey, extend your hand to heal, signs and wonders, miracles to take place through your name of your Holy Spirit, of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind as we think about healing and we think about miracles. Healing was instantaneous. In Mark chapter 1, verse 42, the leper was, it says, immediately cleansed. Healing was complete, and healing was permanent. Matthew 14, 36, even as many as touched Jesus' cloak were what? Cured. Healed blindness, healed perilous, healed 
paralysis, other things, Acts 3, 7, Acts 8, 5 through 7, Matthew 10, 1, we see this, okay? In Matthew 10, 1, actually, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So healing was unconditional. It, it, it was instantaneous. It was permanent. It didn't depend on the faith of the ones being healed. They just came and touched his cloak. Uh, he gave the disciples authority over these things to heal every kind of disease. Remember, in John 9 and 25, we don't have time to look at all these. Remember the blind man that Jesus healed who was questioned by the Pharisees? And, and he didn't even know who Jesus was, did he? Verse 25 says, and he answered, I don't know whether he's a sinner or, or I don't know. One thing I know that I used to be blind, but now I see. So there wasn't even any confirmed understanding of even who Jesus was at that point, only that he had power. And what did the Pharisees, you know, the Pharisees are looking and the people are looking and saying, no one who was born blind has ever been healed by anybody. So obviously a powerful sign to what? To confirm what's actually going on. That the Holy Spirit is at work here, that the Gentiles are coming to faith, that the gospel message is actually coming and it's a true gospel message. It confirms the apostles' message. It confirms Paul's message. It confirms the disciples' ministry. And so these are the purposes. These are the original purposes of healing and the usages of healing and miracles. Healing was done so that entire regions would be delivered from every sickness. There were sections of Jerusalem and the outlying areas where all sickness had been eradicated. That's what we see. So as we think about that first question, can it be shown the original purpose of the temporary sign gift no longer exists today? I think we can say yes. And, and also particularly, can it be shown that the way the temporary sign gifts manifested themselves back in the past does not manifest the way it's manifested today? And I think we can say uh, that's true. So... As you think about those gifts and their use, the original purpose is no longer required today. Since we have the completed scriptures, the message no longer needs to be validated as from God. Uh, the office of the apostle has passed away, therefore those gifts are not required to attest to the authority of the apostle. And the way the gifts were manifested, are manifested today, doesn't match the way they were manifested at the time of the early church. We don't have the unconditional, complete, permanent, instantaneous types of healings. We don't, have, we don't see blindness, paralysis, other conditions like that being healed. We don't see entire cities and regions being delivered from sickness and disease. God still heals today now, just to clarify. He does that through answer prayer. We see that through the scriptures. But this special gift, this temporary sign gift that verified those things we talked about, it appears is not active today. Now let's look at the two other temporary sign gifts, the tongues and interpretation of tongues, and we'll wrap up with that. The original purpose, the usage of tongues, interpretation of tongues, we'll use the same format that we did just a minute ago. Just kind of give you an idea through some, and once again, we're just giving you a sketch. I'm not giving you every passage. We're not talking about church history. We're not talking about, you know, Paul's instructions on how it's to be accomplished. We're not talking about any of that yet. Just talking about, in general, answering these two simple questions, okay? So what's the original purpose and the use of tongues and its interpretation? Well, 1 Corinthians 14, 21, which we're going to get to uh, very shortly, quoting Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. It's a sign to unbelieving Jews. So verse 21 says this in 1 Corinthians 14. In the law it's written, by men of strange tongue and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, so then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but those who believe. Now, just see in that little snapshot, we see it's even defined now by Paul. He quotes Isaiah and says, listen, this was prophecy predicted long ago, 700 years before the Messiah. Now we fast forward to Jesus' time, and he says, listen, look back there. Jesus, uh, the Lord even said to his prophet, by, these, by lips of strangers and, and a foreign tongue, a strange tongue, I'm going to speak to you, and you still won't hear it, even though it's a sign to you. And Paul says, listen, that's exactly what's going on in the first century. So it, it's a sign to unbelieving Jews. We see it also attested to the salvation of the Gentiles. We see that in Acts eleven fifteen. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, what was supposed to happen? Tongues were given. What was supposed to attest to you? Salvation of the Gentiles. And what actually occurred? Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 
So this little movement amongst the Gentiles, this little movement of the new covenant that began to go on, was attested to by the giving of tongues. Acts 2, 4 through 11. Tongues were known languages, unknown to the speaker, but known to a people uh, used to spread the gospel. So what's the purpose? What's the use? Well, they were used to spread the gospel. They attested to the salvation of the Gentiles. They were assigned to the Jews. So Acts 2, 4 says this, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is Pentecost. And when they, the, the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. What were they speaking, beloved? They were giving out the what? The gospel. They were talking about Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, districts of Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. So, tongues were known languages, unknown to the speaker, known to the people, used to spread the gospel. Tongues were attested to the salvation of Gentiles, tongues were assigned to unbelieving Jews, Tongues were regulated now, very important, and we'll get to this passage in, in not too long, 1 Corinthians 14, we'll just touch on it here. Tongues were regulated, one or two, or at the most three, each in turn, and with interpretation. Here's where we see the section of a passage that we're going to study, where the priorities of the Spirit become clear. This is how it's supposed to look in the church. As Paul talks, he says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, each has a teaching, each has a revelation, each has a tongue, each has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So as you think about those gifts and you think about their use, the original purpose is no longer required today. The purpose of tongues as assigned to the Jews to confirm the acceptance of the Gentiles into the church is no longer required today. I think they figured that out, okay? Whether they've rejected it wholly or they just hold on to it in animosity, they understand that the church movement is great. There isn't a greater ally for Israel than what? The church of the Gentiles. They're the ones that stand up. They're the ones that write the letters. They're the ones that say to their congressmen, you better support. They're the ones that vote in presidents who love Israel, okay? That's, this, this is the group. I think they understand that's the case. Since we have completed scripture, which is sufficient, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that it is, a word from God by, by way of tongues and the interpretation of tongues is no longer needed. Uh, the way these sign gifts are manifested today doesn't match the way they were manifested at the time of the early church. What's seen today is uncontrolled, unintelligible, and done by many all at the same time. Some who manifested the temporary gift today believe that baptism of the Holy Spirit has to be accompanied by the speaking of tongues as a true sign of salvation. It's clear from the scripture that each believer has the indwelling spirit of God and receives the baptism of the spirit once at the time of conversion. If Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 and Romans 6, 3 through 5 are to be understood in any kind of normality, then it happens at salvation. It places the believer in the body of Christ and involves the receiving of the spirit as a seal and a promise, Ephesians 4, 13 through 14. It's clear that baptized means to dip or to be immersed into, and in this case it means to be immersed into Christ, which literally means to be united with Christ. Paul's explanation in, in Romans 3, 6, 3 and following is very clear about that. There's never a command to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's never a command to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's never a command to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And we've already looked at that as we, as we examined Ephesians 5, 18, Colossians 3, 16 to be filled with the Spirit, okay? What's clear is that in the early church, not all Christians spoke in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30, and we're gonna look at that in a few Sundays from now, but just look at it now quickly. And God has appointed to the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? 
All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gift of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So the idea then is that not everyone did it. In fact, it was limited. And then we have the instructions from Paul as to how it was supposed to be accomplished. Now, we see that. We see we can answer some questions, I think, both with yes. We barely scratch the surface. There's much more to look at. That kind of gives us an idea of a standing. Why we're saying, as I go through, and I'm saying this is a permanent edifying gift or this is a temporary sign gift, now you know why I'm basing that on that. It's not just kind of a random analyst by Kurt Parker. Oh, that's not for today. That's not for today. Okay, that's for today. It's really what the scriptures seem to indicate. And we'll get into it more as we get into 1 Corinthians 13, but I think it was important to jump ahead. Now, just, tempor- just uh, quickly look at the permanent gifts, and we're going to list some of those off here so you can kind of get an idea, perhaps where you begin to fall inside these gifts that are for the, the benefit of the church. And just in general, permanent gifts are gifts the Holy Spirit gave for the building up of the church. We're going to look at a list of them, give a condensed definition as we work through our, our 1 Corinthians 12 Uh, chapter 12 through chapter 14 passages, and we'll talk about them more. Just remember, these gifts were prevalent in the early church, still active in the church today. And when I say permanent gifts, realize that even that, as we understand when that which is perfect has come, uh, what's going to be left is is love and joy, okay, and peace. And so those kinds of things are going to remain, and even these things are going to pass away. But as I talk about permanent gifts, I'm talking about the church age as we begin, as we minister to one another inside the body. So a couple of things. Prophecy. Passing on direct words from God. It, it literally means to foretell. It doesn't have to mean to foretell the future. It can mean that. It's, it's to preach or to tell forth or to declare the scripture. Teaching, another permanent edifying gift. A gift of the ability to teach the word of God and help hearers understand the scriptures as the author intended. Faith, the ability to apply, gain, uh, apply knowledge gained from spiritual insight Overwhelming obstacle, human, I'm sorry, I'm skipping ahead here, my notes are close. Faith, consistent, enabling faith that truly believes God, even in times of, of difficulty, even in times of overwhelming obstacle, human impossibility, this gift of faith may be expressed in prayer initially or most effectively at the beginning, but someone who has the gift of faith just believes what God says, and it's going to happen. And you've talked to people like this, I know, that we've interacted with people who have this gift of faith, they just believe God at his word, and there's, there's no shadow of turning with them. They just understand God's going to do it. Wisdom, the ability to apply knowledge gained from spiritual insight so that you can give it to believers in order to know right from wrong what to do in a particular situation. We looked at that already. We looked at knowledge as well. Understanding the facts of Scripture, the ability to know the truths of Scripture broadly and deeply, a comprehensive understanding of the Scriptures. We see also in permanent edifying gifts discernment, the ability to tell which things are from the spirit, which things are not. So distinguishing then truth from error, underlying issues are clear to someone who has spiritual gift of discernment. Perhaps that can fall into a counseling, someone who's in a counseling ministry, someone who's in an exhortation type of ministry. We see the gift of mercy, the ability to show deep compassion, empathy to those who have spiritual, physical, and emotional needs. It's the first response, a mercy response. It's not a, I need to fix that response, okay? That's, a, that's a, more of a spiritual gift of exhortation. But the mercy response is to show deep compassion and empathy for those who have spiritual, physical, and emotional needs. That's a spiritual gift from the Lord. It works inside the church for the common good. We also see exhortation. That's the ability to encourage and motivate and bring comfort with love in order to see the deeper spiritual commitment, to see deeper growth, nudge somebody into a proper action. It's going to enable counseling, of course. You may be able to counsel and determine the underlying issues, but then exhortation will be to push them in the right direction and be able to do that in a way that's effective. We also see spiritual gift of giving. It's a direct response to the material ministry of giving food, clothing, money, houses, material goods in response to the needs of the church. Remember, all these function inside the church. All these function, as we speak, inside Berean. So in other words, someone who has a gift of giving, their first response would be to meet the need, whatever it is. And the Lord enables them many times to do that, but he doesn't just give that to people who are well healed, he gives that to everyone. Those gifts can go to anyone. You can meet that need, and you do, and your first response is to meet a need. We see also administration and leadership. That's permanent edifying gifts, functioning inside the church for the mutual benefit of all. That's the ability to oversee the flock in some aspect. It's going to be exhibited, of course, by pastors or elders. Ministry leaders are going to have the spiritual gift so they can oversee that ministry and make that thing function correctly. See the spiritual gift of helps, the ability to aid 
in a time of need or bear one another's burdens as the situation arises, first response, when something's going on, they jump right in and help. You ever met anybody like that? They come in, you're in the middle of something. They don't even have to ask you. They, find a, they see the place, they plug themselves in and get rolling. Great spiritual gift benefits the church. Sometimes flies under the radar. Nobody's thinking, oh man, what a great gift that is. It is a marvelous gift. The gift of service, working for the body of Christ in areas of physical ministry, that really enables deacon's ministry. That is what the deacon is called. That is the deacon ministry, the ministering to the physical needs of the ministry. Remember, just kind of sum this up, okay? Each member of the body is commanded to minister in many of the gifted areas. You're commanded to minister in some of these gifted areas. You realize that, right? Whether they possess the particular gift or not. You may not have that spiritual gift, but you're commanded to minister inside that gifted area. For example, all Christians are told to function in the following areas. Okay, remember? Faith. You're supposed to walk by faith. You're commanded to do that. Wisdom. James 1.5, we're told to ask God for wisdom. So you're supposed to manifest and begin to manifest more wisdom as you grow in your understanding of the Lord. You're commanded to Minister in knowledge. Accurately handle the word of truth. That's your job. Whether or not you actually have the spiritual gift of knowledge, you're supposed to grow in that knowledge. Exhortation, Hebrews 10.25. Encourage one another to assemble together. And there's many places where you're supposed to do things to one another. Not in the manner of some that don't come, but to exhort one another to come. When the church meets, you should be here. And you're supposed to encourage one another to do that. That's a command from the Lord. How about giving? 2 Corinthians 9.7. Each one is to purpose in his heart to give cheerfully and be ready to meet immediate need. You're told to minister inside that gift set even if you don't actually have that spiritual gift because that's what you're supposed to do as a believer. Care for one another. That's really the gift of helps, if you will. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So you're commanded, every member of the body is commanded to minister in many of the gifted areas whether or not you have those spiritual gifts, you have to minister there. We notice in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter says, each one has received a special gift employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You have it, so use it. Went through Romans 12, 6, we saw, if prophecy according to the proportion of faith, if service in his serving, teaching in his teaching, exhorting in his exhortation, giving with liberality, leading with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, you have it, so use it. And people will say, well, how do I know what I have? How, am, how can I be sure? Well, the Bible has more to say about using spiritual gifts than discovering your spiritual gifts, okay? so. You're going to have to get plugged in. And next week, I'm going to give you some steps that can help you as we go through the gifts, understand what your gift perhaps is and how you can determine that. And we'll give you that as we start next time. I don't have time today, so we'll just cut that off. But next week, Lord willing, we're going to pick up in verse 9. We're going to look at the remaining gifts of the Spirit and he's going to, that he's going to mention here and kind of see how we plug in and how that's going to work inside the body and what that looks like. So that's, that's our direction that we're going. You'll know that we're getting close to being done when we get there. And uh, Lord bless you as you take this that we've learned today, that we've looked at today, you can do a simple ad. I know I gave you a lot, but I don't think it was a lot of disjointed things. I think they're all things that help you understand perhaps where you're supposed to be. And the main thing I want you to take away, beloved, is that you are gifted, and it's for the common good, and you need to plug in here, because we're missing what you have if you don't find yourself a place where you can serve. And you can look in the bulletin, and you can find right away a place where you can plug in and you can see Amy right after the service. Amy, lift up your hand if you would. See Amy right after the service. In our children's ministries, we're expanding all over the place, and we need your help. But there's lots of places. There's ministries, beloved, and I say this a lot. There's ministries that Berean doesn't currently do that we're supposed to be doing that you're supposed to be leading. You see that? And that's super important, okay? I, I don't have all the gifts, you know? Uh, Ruth doesn't have all the gifts. Jim doesn't have all the gifts. You know, Tim doesn't have them all. Ben, I mean, we have some, but you have others and there's ministry we need to do that we're not doing yet because you're not plugged in. So that's not a guilt trip. That's just a reality. Because you have gifts, find a place to minister to them. That's what I want you to take away. Okay? All right, let's pray. We'll, we'll close our time up. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you that we can kind of clarify our own thinking. As Paul starts this whole section, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. I don't want to be ignorant about spiritual gifts, beloved. And, and, I, and I know you don't want to be uh, ignorant about spiritual gifts. So, Lord, thank you that you just give us this clear teaching that we can compare Scripture with Scripture and begin to get our feet on solid ground. We don't have to, be, we don't have to just accept, well, the, you know, God can do whatever he wants, and this is what he's doing here. And, he doesn't, scripture we understand, Father, doesn't do anything except you reveal that to us by your word. And so we want to study hard and make sure we're diligent and rightly divide the word of truth.
so we know what you're doing and what you're going to be doing now and what you did then and why. And this is, these things are clear. I pray you'll give us your Holy Spirit and understanding. So, Father, as we go out, I us to go away with rejoicing that you've redeemed us. And the music today was fabulous to, to remember the grace that has brought us to the cross and that the redemption that's been given to us. And thank you for choosing us and, and placing us in this place, in this position of high and lofty position that we can see as good as if we were already there, uh, positioned beside you, co-heirs with Christ. But as we work, Lord, on earth, help us to be those who are servants, the upside-down kingdom where the first is last and the last is first, and those who serve are the ones who are the greatest. And Lord, help us to be those kinds of people as we use our gifts. Father, take us into this short business meeting and give us your wisdom as we look at these many issues and rejoice in some who are coming into this, the, the fellowship. Pray thus all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. I want to invite you quickly as we're going to close right now, and you're going to stand up and find somebody to greet.